Yeah, good morning. Um, so as Vinay said, this, this is a sermon prepared by Andrew. So I will very much be reading what Andrew's written for you to hear this morning. Um, please bear with me if I stumble over some of the words or, or seem to get stuck at points. Um, and Andrew's also included a reasonably extensive personal illustration in the sermon. So yeah, it's Andrew's words, not mine. So please bear that in mind. So, we're in the middle of a series of of the seven words on the cross on the seven Sundays of Lent. This is the fifth Sunday, so we'll be looking at the fifth word from the cross. And our reading this morning is taken from John chapter 19. And specifically, we're looking at John 19, verses 28 to 37. So, we're reading from John chapter 19, verses 28 through to verses 37, reading from the NIV. Later, knowing that all was now completed... And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had finished the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So as we said, this is the fifth Sunday in Lent. We're looking at the fifth word from the cross. Um, And it really is bringing to a culmination the events that have gone beforehand. So at this point, the narrative... It's about 18 hours since the Last Supper, so 18 hours since, as far as we know, Christ has had anything to drink. And it's important to remember that over those 18 hours, there's there's been a huge amount of suffering. The ordeal happens before the Lord was nailed to the cross, and it started to take his toil. So even way back in Gethsemane, we see that Christ is already starting to lose liquid as he he prays there. We see that he starts to to sweat, and his sweat, as as the Bible tells us, is like great drops of blood. And blood was lost by Christ not only on the cross but blood that is lost under the lacerating scourging and the brutal buffeting about this head and this body. He was scourged by the soldiers. It left his back a bloody mass. The crown of thorns had pierced his brow causing further loss of blood. And as Jesus hangs there as he's crucified, he's naked and for six hours his body's hanging in the sun becoming dehydrated. And this dehydration is one of the most terrible sufferings associated with crucifixion. As he hangs there, every sunbeam becomes a leech. It sucks more life-sustaining moisture from his body. And every pore on his skin becomes a flowing fountain. That loss of liquid produces great fever. And because of the high fever, his lips were parched. His eyeballs burn in their sockets. His ear aches with pain. His mouth becomes dry. His tongue swollen. His vocal cords are inflamed, reducing his voice to a husky croak and a very great strain is exerted on his heart. 
But even above, beyond that, there's another great distress we need to remember. That distress over the great difficulty in breathing. When a crucified man finally dies, he dies of asphyxiation. He dies because he can no longer breathe. He virtually suffocates because the entire body weight is pulling heavily down upon his arms. He can breathe in, but he cannot breathe out. And so as he hangs there, a crucified man is always struggling against asphyxiation, against respiratory failure. And finally, after hours, the diaphragm collapses for the last time, never to rise again, and the man's breathing stops. So this is why, as an act of mercy to hasten the process, that the legs of the crucified man were smashed. It was as the man arched his legs against the props that helped ease the bodily strain on the arms and it enabled the man to go on breathing and to go on suffering. So the breaking of the leg stops him from raising his body to draw breath and he dies almost instantaneously and mercifully. Now it's about this point when his ordeal is nearly coming to an end. The darkness has vanished. The sun shines again. John has just returned from taking Jesus' mother to his own home. And as he stands at the foot of Jesus' cross, he hears what Jesus says. And he is the only one who reports it. And what John heard was this, just two words. I thirst. And that's the fifth word in the cross we've read in John chapter 19, verse 28. Now from what we've said, why do you think he says this? Why is he saying, I thirst? People under the cross hearing Jesus say, I thirst, will most naturally respond, thinking he's thirsty. Give him some water. And we see how they did offer Christ a drink. So you'd be forgiven to think that when he said, I thirst, it's because he's drying up, because he's thirsting from dehydration. After all, look at him. He's hanging up there. The midday sun has been scorching him. He's been perspiring for the last many hours. He's losing liquid. Surely he's asking for water to quench his thirst. But that cannot be right. He's not thinking of his own bodily needs. How do we know? How can we say that? Well, because of all the torturous, unbearable physical ordeal he's been going through, he hasn't said a word. Up to this very moment, he hasn't said a word about the physical suffering. He hasn't said anything through all he's been subjected to. He suffered all that physical torture and abuse and he said not a word. He was beaten. He didn't say a word. He was scourged. He said nothing. He was whipped till his back is all lacerations. He said nothing. His brow was cut deep by the crown of thorns. He said nothing. His hands were punctured through by those huge spikes. His feet nailed down. But Christ spoke not a word. In so many places in Scripture it says and it prophesies he opened not his mouth. Not so much as a whimper. Scripture prophesies as a sheep that is led to the slaughter is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. And Scripture stresses that again and again repeatedly and forcefully that Christ was silent. Now, if through all this he didn't say so much as a word, why would thirst cause him to cry out, I thirst? 
You'll be hard put to come up with a sound argument that he's really calling out for water to quench his thirst. But if that's the case, if it isn't physical thirst, what is this thirst that he's feeling so dreadfully? What is this thirst that he's feeling at this point? By way of an answer, let me share with you what I personally struggled with for a good number of years after I became a Christian. Years after I became a Christian, I continued having some doubts that I would quietly struggle with. You know, there are some lingering doubts we all have that we don't tell people necessarily. Maybe we think other people don't ponder about those issues. Or perhaps we're scared they'll think we're not spiritual. So many of us have doubts that we don't openly speak out. Let me expose to you a doubt I had for many years. I used to wonder how it is that Jesus, taking all that beating and mocking, could save me. Another man could well go through all that for me too. How is it that only his suffering could save me? Only later did I come to see that he did not just get himself tortured, he didn't just get himself beaten, spat on, he didn't just get himself mocked and crucified because someone else could have done all that for me. I came to see that it wasn't his physical beatings that saved me, terrible though they were. All that, horrendous and dreadful as it was, pale into nothingness when compared to something else, something else he did for me. And it wasn't that that saved me, not his physical suffering. I'm not saved by the beating. I'm not saved by the physical torture. I'm not saved by the physical pain he went through, by the spitting, the mocking, or even the crucifixion that he endured. The beating, the taunting, the crucifixion he endured, he endured for only a few hours. He endured it in a real-life time frame. That would be like a flea bite compared to the suffering that lasts eternally. What is that? What is the eternal suffering? That suffering is hell. It was hell that caused him to cry out, I thirst. When Jesus says, I thirst, he is not going through a most blistering experience. Sorry, he is going through a most blistering experience. He's being stretched out. He's spread eagles. He's hanging there. He's scorched. But he's scorched mostly not by the midday eastern sun, but is incinerated by the vengeful, terrible wrath of God. You could say that when he cried out, I thirst, he's being singed, scalded, parched, scorched and incinerated by the fierce, flaming fires of God's wrath. So it's really not the physical thirst he's expressing. His entire body, mind, soul, spirit is seared but seared by the fierce, scorching flame of God's anger. If you read Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and that's widely available, you'll come to see from his very graphic illustration that there's really no fury. There is no fury like the fury of God's wrath. You can read of the lake of burning brimstone, the lake of burning sulphur, the relentless burning and smouldering fire, and in short, the cry I thirst is the very same cry as the cry of dereliction from the cross. Right at this moment on the cross, Christ is thinking of Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joints. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And that's Psalm 22, verses 1, 2, 14 and 15. And those verses are a cry expressing the emptiness of God-forsakenness. It's a cry of being left, hanging, out, hanging dry, and not only stripped of the security of God's presence, but torched by God's anger against sin. It could not be an expression of his physical thirst. His physical thirst would be a mere flybite in comparison to his spiritual dehydration which is God's abandonment. As the creed says, he descended into hell. He suffered not just for three hours on the cross, but he suffered the totality, the finality of hell. He suffered that as his experience. What everyone deserves to suffer in hell for all eternity, that he suffered. What every person who is deserving of hell will one day have to suffer, he suffered all of that for every Christian. Everyone's hell put together, that he suffered, which is an eternity of hell. That hell that everyone would suffer, everyone's deserved hell, all of that, and for all eternity, put together, that was what he willingly suffered for us, so that we won't have to suffer it. An eternity of hell. An eternity of everyone's hell put together. How could anyone endure that? This is why the request of Mrs. Zebedee is such a foolish request. She comes to Jesus and says, speaking of her sons, James and John, See that these two sons of mine, grant them to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And Adam Clark in his commentary says this, he says, Strange blindness. You cannot, one drop of this cup would sink you into utter ruin unless upheld by the power of God. On the cross, Jesus Christ suffered eternal spiritual death. He was cut off from God so that I now could make peace with God. He has to go through that horrendous spiritual thirst so that we may be given springs of living water. He's got to go through an eternity without God so that we may have an eternity with God. He's got to be alienated from God so that we may make peace with God. So I finally came to see that no one could have done that for me only the suffering of a sinless one can be sacrificed there for me. For so many years, perhaps, you've heard that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you tell yourself nothing new. I've heard all that. What you perhaps haven't heard, or at least not emphasised, is this. That he went through hell. That Jesus absorbed in his body the full brunt of God's raw, vengeful wrath. 
Now knowing that, how may we apply such a teacher? Sorry, such a teaching? Consistently in the scriptures you'll see that when people are away from God, they're said to be thirsty. Scripture is revealing to us that, when your, that what your soul needs is every bit as necessary and urgent as the water that your body needs. Just as your body dehydrates when you don't have water, your soul shrivels up and you die spiritually if you don't drink from the living water from Jesus himself. Scripture is revealing to us that if God is not what fills you up from the lowest depth of your soul, right to brimming and overflowing, if something else, if someone else is filling your soul, you'll die of thirst, not just now, but for all eternity. How do we know? Well, remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. It's a story describing hell. And it has the rich man in hell saying to God, Tell Lazarus to come and dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue with it, because I am in agony in this fire. He's dying eternally. Not so much from God subjecting him to the flames burning him from the outside. But he himself has experienced a fire inside him, a thirst from within that now will never ever find relief in God. You'll remember perhaps the woman at the well. What did our Lord say to her? He says to her this. See this water that you're drawing. Whoever drinks of this well water will thirst again. But if you drink the water I give you, you will never thirst again. Just what is Jesus saying to her? What water is this? What water is this that he's giving here so that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again? What he says makes no sense until you acknowledge that he's surely not talking about a physical thirst. And you'd be right. Because right through scripture, the human experience of thirst is often used as a metaphor. A metaphor for deep, agonizing emptiness. A metaphor for spiritual barrenness. You see it in David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. He cries out, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in the dry and weary land where there is no water. And that's in Psalm 63 verse 1. Or the psalmist who writes in Psalm 42 verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And we see it again in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water the Bible writer sees a deer in the forest running after the running stream and he uses it as a metaphor for spiritual thirst he says as the deer pants for streams of water so my soul pants for you O God my soul thirsts for God for the living God where can I go and meet with God and from these things you can naturally conclude that if an animal dies from having no water to drink so in the same way the human heart that is not filled with God will die the human heart will die from an absence of God and the narrative of the woman at the well that we mentioned it most clearly reveals to us that the only way for our thirst to be quenched is to not only have God in our heart but to find him is the only one, the only one who can fully satisfy that thirst. Remember, 
Jesus tells her that he has this water, that if she drinks of it, she'll never thirst again. And not surprisingly, she turns around and says, Really? You've got that kind of water? You really mean to say, if I drink of it, I'll never thirst again? You mean, I won't even have to come here again and draw water anymore? Well, who wouldn't want it? Give it to me, please. But it's what Jesus says next that should jolt all of us. Because he says to her, go and get your husband. This is so very strange. She's asking for water, and he's asking for her husband. But she says to him, I don't have a husband. He says, too right you don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're with right now isn't even your husband. I say it's strange, because just when she's about ready to receive some spiritual water for her thirst... Jesus reminds her of some of the messy, messy relationships in her life. What seems to be happening? Is he veering away from the subject? No, not at all. He could not have been more on the target. He wants to help her see that she has this deep craving for God, but she's finding it elsewhere. She's filling it with men, with relationships, with a, look, with a search for love. He wants her to see that her running after men and running after life is really the cry for the deep, satisfying love. The love that only God can give. He wants to tell her that she's been looking at all the wrong places. He wants her to know that even if she comes to believe in God, right there, sitting at the well, she'll go on thirsting for what her heart deeply needs unless she comes to see that the real thirst quencher is God alone, God only that there is nothing in this whole wide world that can fill the huge, gaping hole in her heart if she does not come to see God as filling that for her. Sometimes you have a taste of something that's sweet and beautiful and you imagine if you get more of it you'll be satisfied. But it never satisfies fully. It never satisfies ultimately. It doesn't matter the best job in the world, the most beautiful home you could build, the best companion in life, the most tender, understanding spouse. None of these things ultimately satisfy. Because deep inside, your thirst is for something far more profound than a great career, or a great home, or a great family. Silently, we're thirsting for a sense of purpose. We don't want to feel we're simply blood and bones, a chance collection of atoms from random mutation, because that gives no significance. Silently, we're searching for love. And even here, the best soulmate on this earth will leave you desiring for more. Someday you will stand over the grave of the one you love very deeply. And you'll know that this too will go. Silently, we're thirsting for consolation. For something in the lining of your soul that's not sitting right there. You feel the pinch. You're not at peace. There's a sense of guilt. You know you're somewhat not right. And if you will not hear from God what's the matter with you, you'll always be second-guessing, and there's no peace. But there is a kind of water. There is a kind of water that if you drink of, you'll never ever thirst again. Whatever Jesus is saying here, he's telling us something for sure. 
there isn't such a well inside us. There isn't such a well inside us from we can draw from which we can draw such water. We've got to go to him for that. And simply believing in God, just believing that God exists, isn't going to help you. Here the Bible is talking about something that is far, far deeper than just having God in your heart. You can have God in your heart and you can still be deeply thirsty. In fact, the only way your heart will not be totally the only way your heart will be totally quenched of its thirst is when your heart not only has Jesus living there, but when your heart finds deep, deep satisfaction and quiet contentment in having Jesus live there. To the degree that you are satisfied with Jesus, to that degree you will cease from looking to other things to satisfy you. Like the deer, when it drinks from the running brook, finds the water totally satisfying, you will come to see that Jesus is the most satisfying thing you've been longing for. And I pray that God in his grace will give you a willing heart to learn to find deep satisfaction in Jesus alone.